back in Deuteronomy, and we have been noticing in Deuteronomy that this is Moses preaching his final sermons to the people of Israel as they are preparing to enter the promised land. Moses is not going to be able to go in with them. And so Moses is explaining the law, teaching them about God, telling them about what God expects of them, and more importantly, who they are supposed to be because of what God has done for them. And that's really the essence of what this seventh chapter of Deuteronomy is really going to look at, is an important picture of what God has done And because of what God has done, then it's going to lead to certain uh, requirements and responses from God's people. And so that's where we will begin. Notice Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Let's start with this first picture. And he starts off by saying, I want you to take out these temptations to sin, essentially. You are going to come in to the land and he lists them seven nations and nothing more encouraging than to say, you're going to go into these seven nations and I want you to know that they are more numerous and mightier than you. (laughs) You're going to go into the land and you've got something against you. Seven nations and yes, they're stronger. And yes, they're bigger and mightier. But then it says... But when God gives them to you, and one of the things you're going to see throughout the book of Numbers is a repeated emphasis that God is going to put upon Israel that they were not to look to themselves. And you're going to see that throughout this chapter tonight. And he starts with that right here. If you look at yourself and you look at a physical way of of evaluation, they're stronger than you. They're mightier than you. It wouldn't go well for you, but God is going to give you the victory. God is going to defeat them for you. God is going to give them into your hands. Which, remember, that is what Moses and Caleb and Joshua and Aaron stood up and said back in the book of Numbers in the prior generation when they said they're mightier and they're more numerous than us. And they stood up and said, that doesn't matter. God is going to give us the victory. Well, now we're in the second generation and here's the reminder. It doesn't matter that they're bigger and stronger. That has no relevance. God is going to give the victory. You might notice that it's a description describing to them about do not make alliances with them. I want you to make no treaties with any of the inhabitants of the land and essentially to show them no mercy is even specified there. And it's interesting how often today people come into texts like this, particularly those who want to find problems with the Bible and really struggle with this command and say, how can you say to show them no mercy? Doesn't that doesn't make any sense? 
Well, it doesn't make any sense right here, but if you had read earlier leading up to this point, as well as what God will say later, he states to them over and over again, the reason why Israel is being given this land is that the inhabitants are coming under a judgment. In fact, that's implied here where he says, I don't want you to make alliances because what's going to happen is your sons and your daughters are going to be corrupted by the sinful idolatry that's going on in the land. And so that's why you are supposed to deal a judgment against them because God is ultimately judging them. That's Leviticus 18. Do not make for yourself, make yourselves unclean by any of these things for by all these nations I'm driving out before driving before you have become unclean and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants and he will say that in chapter 9 he said that back to Abraham Abraham wasn't allowed to take the land yet because he was going to allow the nation to be filling up its sins and then bring judgment against it It is important to underscore as well, God is certainly not showing favoritism because not only will the book of Deuteronomy say this, but read any of the prophets. And God says, I'm going to do the same thing to you, Israel, if you behave in the exact same way as the nations before you. It is not that God is being partial or not being merciful, but it is a time of judgment that their time has come, just as you see in the rise or fall of any nation throughout all of world history, that God gives nations a time to repent, and then ultimately judgment is coming. And that is what God is telling them here. Do not make an alliance. Do not intermarry. Do not be joined with them. Do not serve their gods, because judgment is coming upon them for those very sins. And Israel was then to be the execution, if you will, of God's wrath upon this very nation. So ultimately what you have then is a call for them to rip out all the temptations to sin. Don't go into the land and pick up the habits and the ways of the inhabitants that are in that land. Don't pick up their idolatry. Do not pick up their practices. That's why you need to go in and drive them out completely. Ultimately because... It is easy to be led away by sin. Ultimately, that is the big deal here, is that sin is easy to fall into. It is easy to sin when other people are doing it. You see the inhabitants of the land participating in these idolatrous ways, and he says, you are going to go in and your children are going to be tempted to do the very same thing. Which, by the way, was God right? Yes, he was, because what did the people do? The very thing he warned them about is they would go in and adopt all those practices. And that's exactly what they do by the days of the judges. You see that very thing happening. And so that was God's concern. But notice the big deal about all this is in verse 6. The reason why you need to do all this, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Notice, don't make an alliance. Don't do any of these things because judgment is coming upon them. So don't be like them because I've called you to be different. I've chosen you to be my treasured possession. And you just imagine as Moses is proclaiming this sermon and reminding them of who they are. Don't forget that you are chosen by God. 
that you are a treasured possession that out of all the peoples of the earth, God has chosen you. And they were to see that relationship as a special one. We are distinct. We are not to be like the nations and the inhabitants of the land because we are his possession. But notice what that's supposed to mean for them. Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So he says, now here's the thing. You are to be holy. You are chosen. You are God's treasured possession. But notice what the very next thing that he says. Don't let that make you think high of yourself. It's not because of you. It's not because there was something special about you. It's not because you were more numerous or something like that. That's what he says in verse 7. I don't want you to think that because God chose you, that that you should think highly of yourself, that there was something unusual or special about you. There's not. Which leads to the question, so then why did God choose Israel? And notice God answers that. No, it wasn't your size. He says in verse 7, because I chose to love you. You got to like that. It's not because there was something special about you. It's because I chose to love you. I believe any parent would understand that. If you were to ask a parent and say, why do you love your kids? The answer would not be, well, because they do all these great things. <laughs> They've done all these marvelous actions, and because they get, you know, straight A's and do all these kinds of things, that's why I love them. No. Why do you love them? It answers the question because you do. And that's what God is saying. The reason I chose you, and the reason you're my treasured possession, is because I love you. That's it. God chose them. That's the end of the story. And that's what the whole picture is being given here, is that I am showing my love to you, I've chosen to love you, and I am keeping my oath. I am keeping my word because I said that that's what I would do. This is an important declaration about the sovereignty of God and the election of God, is that the source of God's election is His own faithfulness and His own love. Now, this is how God puts it forward. I want to love this group of people, and so therefore that's what I do. And that's what he tells them. You know, what unfortunately would happen with Israel is that they would come along and think there was something distinct and special about them that God would never judge them. As we've seen in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they would run around and say, well, it's because we're children of Abraham or because we have a temple or because we have these things. And God right here in Deuteronomy is saying, I don't want you to ever think that. The reason you're chosen is because God loves you. That's why you're chosen. There's nothing inherent within yourself that you could look at and say, this is the reason why we are chosen. Which leads to a very important direction then in verses 9 and 10. Therefore know that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. 
He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Since God has chosen you, the response is to be, we will obey. Since it's nothing of ourselves that God has selected and said, I love you and I care about you and I've set my love and affection upon you. The response of the people then is to be, you will love God. In fact, you will notice the way it's framed in verses 9 and 10 because essentially it is being left to a decision for Israel. In verse 9 he says, God blesses those who loves him. But in verse 10 he says, he repays to the face those who hate him. Now, why does Moses do that? Well, you're about to enter the land. And the highlight of these two verses is God always does what he says. God is faithful to his word. He always keeps his covenant. Here's the covenant. I love you. Now, if you do what I say, you will have all kinds of blessings. And if you don't do what I say, then I will repay those who hate me. That's the answer. And the question that is left to the people of Israel to decide, God always keeps his word. Which end of his word do you want to have happen to you? He always keeps his covenant. So would you like the positive aspects of the covenant? Or would you like the negative aspects of the covenant? The choice is yours. And that's what he's laying before them. You decide. And that's why he then calls for them in verse 11. So do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God's love demands a response. What are you going to do with the love of God? He has chosen you and He loves you. Now what are you going to do with it? And that's what you see in verses 12 through 16. He just goes about describing all of the blessings that are going to come if they would simply obey. The increase of your herds, the fruit of the ground, all kinds of blessings are being described in that next paragraph saying, I'm going to richly bless you, but you need to keep my covenant. That's the blessings of the covenant. Which I would like to strike something here that I think is very important to underscore. It's an important message in all the scriptures. It's an important message in regards to relationships. God loved Israel no matter what. But the blessings only came if they maintained faithfulness. God is saying the reason I love you is because I love you. However, the blessings are only going to flow... If you do as I say, I'll love you no matter what. However, how you handle the covenant will dictate everything about how it goes for you in the land. I've told my kids that very message over and over again. I'll love you no matter what. No matter what you do, I'll always love you. But depending upon how you act will determine if there are the blessings of the family towards you or the curses. I'll love you no matter what you do, but there will be either positive or negative outcomes to your decisions. And that's what God is laying out right here. This is his big declaration. I love you because I love you. That will never change. I will always love you. But understand, there are rewards and there are consequences. And you choose what you're going to do. And it's up to you. And so that's how he lays it out here. God will be faithful to this covenant. He will be faithful to his word. He will carry out exactly what he says. So do you want him to carry out the good? Or do you want him to carry out the negative consequences. This then becomes an interesting turning point to this part of the sermon. Look at verse 17. 
If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? Notice the concern. Here here is a preemptive question. All right. We've already admitted that there are seven nations inside this promised land that are more numerous and stronger than you. And you are going to look at them and you are going to perhaps say in your heart, these nations are greater than I. And by the way, yes, on paper they are. God had just admitted that in verse 1. How can I dispossess them? How are we going to get rid of them? How are we going to do this? Notice God's answer. Verse 18, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. So notice the picture that's given. You're going to look at this and you're about to go into the promised land. You're going to say to yourself, they're stronger. They're more numerous. And here's what God says. When you're concerned about that, don't look to yourself, but remember everything God did for you in the past. The way you will have encouragement and hope and you will deal with your fear in going into the land is remembering how God dispossessed and dealt with Egypt. Completely overthrew him. You remember the mighty works of God. You remember what he did to Egypt and how he overthrew them. And here is God saying, I'm going to do that to these as well. You have no reason to fear because you have the past to look at. I am fascinated how often God does that. He will do that over and over again, not only in Deuteronomy, but really through the whole of scriptures is that God doesn't come along to every new generation and say, let me do a special miracle to you so that you will know that I care about you and I love you and I'm with you. What God does is He always makes you look backward and say, there was this one big event, the Exodus. And Israel was for generation after generation after generation, hundreds and hundreds of years, look back to the Exodus and know That God is with them. That was their big turning point. That was to be their hope. God did that for us in the past. So he will be with us in the future. Which is what verse 21 says. Why should you have hope? Because God is in your midst. Because God is going to be with you. And they would see that. They saw that visibly. Here's our tabernacle sitting right here in the midst of us. And we're about to go into the land. Don't be afraid. God is in, in your midst. Which then rounds out chapter 7. And then God talking about how He's going to move the enemies out on their behalf. And it's interesting that He loops back around to the problem of idolatry. It's like God knows what the issue is going to be. And you see that there in verse 25. 
not to be ensnared by the silver or the gold that is on the idols. Verse 26, you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. God's big message here is, I hate that idolatry, and that's why you should hate it. God despised those sins and he tells Israel, don't you dare touch that or get anywhere near it or participate in any of that idolatry because it's an abomination to me and therefore it should be an abomination to you. I like the NIV reading in that where it reads there, you are to regard it as vile. That is exactly the idea. Look at it and abhor it. Be no participant in it whatsoever. God despises it and that should be your perception of it. As well. Now, there are really huge New Testament implications that come out of this chapter. In particular, there are two New Testament places that rely heavily upon the imagery that is being struck here because we read this and think, well, how special is it that Israel had this? How amazing it is that God came to Israel and said, I chose you, you're my treasured possession, you're my people. And therefore you belong to me and I love you in that regard. But the New Testament says the very same thing to us and applies these very words to ourselves. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he proclaims there, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were not, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice how similar the picture is. You're chosen, you're holy, you're a people for his own possession. And same, same idea, same language being said. Here he is now talking to the people of God and saying, all of those promises that you're reading about there of God saying, I chose you and you belong to me and you're my treasured possession, that's us. <clears throat> in fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, where here you have the picture of we're chosen by God, same imagery that's being given there as well. And so here is the same message. We are God's people and we have received His mercy. We are His treasured possession. We are this chosen race and this holy nation. You see the Apostle Paul do the same thing in Titus 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice he says the grace of God has appeared. And what has been accomplished by Jesus is that he has redeemed us from lawlessness. And the way it's worded, to purify for himself a people. It's the very imagery of Deuteronomy 7. You are my holy people. I have chosen you. I love you. 
and you belong to me. Therefore, do good works. Therefore, as he describes there at the beginning of verse 11, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age. That's the whole imagery of what's being given here. Same picture, same message. So the message of Deuteronomy 7 becomes the same message for us. Since we are to be the holy people, since we are the chosen ones as well, since we are the treasured possession, let's take the very message that Israel received in Deuteronomy 7 and apply it to us. If we're to be the holy people of God, we have a responsibility to cut out sins and things that cause to sin, which is all over the New Testament and teaching us that. All over the place, the apostles are proclaiming you are putting off the old self and putting on the new, that we have been called to put away those things. Since we are God's people, this is the calling that has been given to us. We will look at sin. We will abhor those things. Just as God despises those things, we will do likewise. We will not draw closer to sin. We will not enjoy it. We will not cover it up. We will not participate in those things because we're supposed to be the people of God we're supposed to be his treasured possession number two we have to always remember that we've been chosen by the grace of God not because there's something that we have done to earn it or merit it or because of us The message that was given to Israel is simply true of us as well. That we would never look at ourselves. Well, it's because, you know, I go to church every Sunday. That's why God loves me. God loves you because he loves you. Now, are you going to respond and do as he says? Of course he loves you. So often what we can have the tendency to do is, is move God's love in terms of the conditions of ourselves and think, well, because I do so many good things, this is how I've merited or caused God to act in my favor. And that's not the idea at all. God has always struggled against our minds and our will that always tries to make this about ourselves and over and over again reminding us You're not saved by works. It's not because of something you did that God has come in and done this. We see that message again and again. We love God. Why? Because he first loved us. Over and over again, that message is given to us that God had to initiate the act. And we're simply responding in love. And this is what Israel was told. Is that God came in in the Exodus and look at what he did. Now, how are you going to respond to that? Moses did not come in and take a poll and say, all right, now if we all will be righteous, then God will lead us out of here. Let's see who wants to hook okay, Who wants to follow God and who doesn't want to follow God? No, God just acted. And now it's the response of the people. What are you going to do because he acted? And in the same way, God has not come generation after generation, but as a singular event, the cross of Christ. By which now we look back and go, now what are we going to do in response to that? You didn't come and take a poll and say, now who wants Jesus to die for the world? Because the answer was from the world, nobody did. Nobody cared. We all were selfish. We all were not interested. But he dies anyways. Again, Romans 5, he dies while we were ungodly, while we are sinners. And so this is the picture that's given to us again and again. The motivation that we are to have then is because of the mercy that's been received. What is to motivate us then and what moves us and what causes us to be careful to obey everything that God has done 
is because of what God has already done. It is so important that we link those things together and never, ever, ever pull them apart. And sometimes obedience is just put out there as you just need to obey. Just do it. He said it, just do it. And there is certainly a truth to the reality that God is God and whatever he says goes and we need to do what he says. But it's interesting that that's never God's motivation. God doesn't come to Israel and just say, I'm God, do what I say. (laughs) No, what God does is he says, look at what I did for you. Look at my display of love. Now, will you love me? Will you be a people who do good works? Will you be a people who will be holy? Will you be a people that will be set apart from the world? God acts first in that and calling for us to carefully obey because of the mercy that we have received. And that's what I think then was the ultimate hope for Israel. One of the things that you see again and again it's this beautiful picture of God saying, I'm in your midst. You can eliminate your fears and you can look to God because I'm in your midst. I'm right there with you. And I'm over and over again startled when I read this emphasis that God keeps highlighting. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy now. And all of these books, here is God saying, I want to be with you and I want to be in your midst. If you remember Exodus 25, the whole big deal of God is saying, I want to dwell in your midst. Now, who wants to take up a free will offering to build a tabernacle? Because I want to be in your midst. And it's so interesting to me with that highlighted, with that great repetition again and again. God wants to be in the midst of his people. God wants to be with his people. But you have the name of Emmanuel. God is with us. Here is God coming down and being in the midst of his people. And not just simply in the form of a physical tabernacle or with incense in the Holy of Holies, but God himself. We have seen his glory. Here is God walking in the midst of his people. This is how much he loves us. And this is the hope that we have is that this is to cause us to stop sinning. This becomes the great motivation to stop sinning. I don't believe there's going to be much forward movement in winning a battle against sin and being the purified people that God wants us to be if we're only going to do it in terms of I need to stop doing this sin. It just doesn't really work. But the motivation to stop the sin to be, how can I do this because of what God has done for me? You see Joseph utter those very words and presented with the temptation of of Potter's first wife. How could I do this against my God? You see, that's where we have to move to in our battle against sin is to look at it in terms of how can I do this against God? How can I do this against the one who has redeemed me, who has saved me, who loves me, who has chosen me, even though I was an enemy and a sinner and unrighteous, he still cared for me. That becomes the motivation of love. This will motivate us then to love what God loves. This will motivate us to hate what God hates. It will motivate us to destroy our idols that are in our heart. 
by knowing that God is with us, that God loves us, that He has chosen us, and that He has made us His treasured possession. I want you to look at one other interesting thing before we wrap up this chapter, though. I want you to look at the promise of verse 15. Deuteronomy 7, verse 15. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. It's an interesting thing that he says in the, the midst of all this description. And some of this, I don't think we would struggle with in describing all of these blessings. I'll bless the fruit of your womb and increase your grain and increase your herds and increase your wine and your oil. He lays out all of these blessings. And then he throws this line out here in verse 15 where he says, and God promises to take away all your sicknesses. Now I'm going to do what we talked about Sunday morning. I stopped and I thought about that for a while and went, That's a really interesting promise that he laid out right there. Was he telling them, okay, well, you're never going to be sick. You know, you would never catch a cold when you go into the promised land. Is that the big idea that he was getting? And I don't think that was the big idea. It is particularly fascinating that God often has to use physical things to help us see a spiritual reality. And you see that truth in Jesus. When Jesus comes, you ever considered the types of miracles that Jesus is performing more often than not. You know, Jesus, of all the miracles that he could do to reveal who he is, to reveal his might or his glory, you know, he could have made the earth open up. Uh, He could do all kinds of things that would cause people to go, wow, that's totally amazing. Look, the sky opened up and he made that happen. You know, make it not rain for three years like Elijah or do something like that. You know, it's really interesting to think about the vast majority of Jesus' miracles usually center around healing. Even the Gospels say everywhere he's going, he's proclaiming the kingdom. And what's he doing? Healing diseases and afflictions that the people have. In fact, I think it is particularly interesting the way that's worded in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16, where there the gospel writer, Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases, which might sound familiar because that's Isaiah 53. It is interesting that there is a messianic hope that is built within Deuteronomy 7 and declaring, you're going to be my people. And when you enjoy this relationship, I'm going to so overwhelmingly bless you. But there's even going to be the taking away of illnesses. You will no longer have these sicknesses. And again, this doesn't seem to be pointing to Israel would never catch a cold and never have the flu and never have a fever. But talking about the grand reality of what God has ultimately come to do, that God has come to take away the thing that afflicts us most, that we are spiritually sick and that he would heal us. And what Jesus did was he used something that was physical to be able to see what was being accomplished spiritually by coming and healing the way he did. Everybody was to understand with the kind of savior we have. 
Here is the one that God has promised who has come to truly heal us because that's ultimately what our lives need. The hope that we have and the thing that we need most is that these sin-sick souls, as we sing, need healing from God. We need God to heal us. And there is a hope that is built into here and a hope that would have its greatest fulfillment when Jesus came and he took away all of the things that could possibly prevent us from being able to be in relationship with the Holy God. It's the beautiful thing that Moses was able to see even in the life of Israel as they went through the wilderness. Where at one time you had the Mount Sinai that none could touch. That if anyone came near, they would surely die. If even animal came near, they'd surely die. A barricade was to be put around the mountain so that no one would touch it. And then after the blood of the covenant is laid upon the people, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders all go up on the mountain. Now there's healing. Now God can be with his people. And here is Deuteronomy picturing that. I love you. I've chosen you. You are my special people. Keep to the covenant and I will bless you. I will take away the thing that afflicts you. I will deal with your greatest problem and give you your greatest need. I'll remove those sins. I'll give you the healing that your life absolutely needs. But you need to be part of the covenant and you need to obey what God has said. It's a beautiful message that Moses is preaching to the people. What a wonderful message that he gives to them. You are God's chosen and treasured possession. Look to God. Do not look to yourself. Be careful to obey all that the Lord has spoken. Cut the sins out of our lives and understand that our hope rests firmly in the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Sometimes you read the Old Testament and think there's, there's no hope and no mercy back there. And you can hear Moses say, no, no, no. It's a God full of mercy and grace. He says, I chose you not because of who you are. I chose you because I love you. And I want you to be my people. And God makes that offer to us today. He loves us. He's acted for our behalf in spite of our sin. So that we could be with him. But we need to respond to the covenant. God is faithful to his word. And we can either enjoy the blessings. Or we can enjoy the curses of the covenant. May we choose to enjoy the blessings of relationship. The blessings of being his treasured possession. The blessings of true spiritual healing. We follow him with all of our heart. You ready to come to that? We invite you to do that now. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?